welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues. And I have conversations with foreign policy thought leaders who discuss their life, career, and the big events that shape their worldview. My guest today, Marcy Hirsch, recently returned from a research trip to the Balkans, where she followed refugee women and girls as they made their way through Europe. Marcy is a senior advocacy officer with the Women's Refugee Commission, and we kick off our conversation discussing what she witnessed on that trip and the broader struggles that are unique to female refugees around the world. Marcy has had a long career in humanitarianism, including a stint in Haiti just after the earthquake, but she started off as an English teacher abroad. We discuss what compelled her to teaching, to international affairs, to feminism, and how reading Simone de Beauvoir on a desolate outer atoll of the Marshall Islands gave her a new perspective on her life and career. This is a great episode, refreshing and interesting. As always, hit me up on Twitter at Mark L. Goldberg or visit globaldispatchespodcast.com if you want to get in touch. Please do consider leaving a review on iTunes if you are so compelled. And now here is my conversation with Marcy Hirsch. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Some colleagues and I went to Serbia and Slovenia. Uh, this was the second trip that we've done in the region, looking at the experience of women and girls who are making this migration from Syria, from Iraq, from Afghanistan, and a number of other countries, all with the hope of reaching Western Europe. So the first mission that we went on was in uh, Greece and Macedonia, and then and then we, as I said, we traveled on to uh, further along the route to Serbia and then Slovenia on this trip. And the point of the trip was uh, primarily to speak first and foremost to to women and girls who are making this journey, but then to everyone who is serving them. So that includes grassroots women's organizations, civil society groups, UN agencies, and also the the government agencies and authorities that uh, are playing a a frontline role in this response effort. So do women and girls make up like about half or perhaps a minority of migrants along this route? You know, the numbers are really fuzzy. And if you take a look at the, the current um, UN refugee agency statistics that um, that are available online, it'll show that the number of women and children making the migration are, are relatively few in, in comparison to the number of men, um, and that is less than 50%. Um, and, and certainly in the early days of, of the European migration crisis, you know, over the summer, in the beginning of the fall, um, anecdotally, what humanitarians were saying to us who were there in the field was that it really when you look out, it's a sea of men who are making this journey. Um, today, I can say that for myself, it really it really looks like it's actually mostly women and children who are making the journey. Um, certainly, there are men there as well, um, but but it feels it feels very mixed, and it feels like there are a lot of families and and a lot of women and kids who are making the 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 the, the journey. Is that likely um, because the men like already made the journey and now are right. sending for their families? Right, like the so men came inter- in that first wave. For sure. So there's some really interesting dynamics at play here. So um, partly, yes, there there is a guess that um, that men went ahead sort of in a first round to make sure that the journey was safe and that there was something in Germany, in Sweden, in other destination points that was worth traveling for and then gave the OK to families um, back at home that now they should follow. Um, but something that we're also hearing now, which um, which I find a little bit concerning, is that um, sometimes families uh, in Syria, for example, are sending on women and sometimes children alone, unaccompanied minors traveling totally on their own ahead of the family, actually, because of the sense that um, that women and children will be deemed vulnerable and therefore prioritized by humanitarian actors and given an easier and or swifter route in making the migration. And therefore, these 
these, uh, you know, these individuals are traveling by themselves with sort of the burden of their entire family's eventual passage on to Western Europe on their shoulders. That makes some amount of intuitive sense to me, at least. I mean, it, it seems that after that first wave uh, this summer, um, that the Balkan countries in general really tightened their borders and, and erected fences. So it's probably like a lot harder to get through now than it was um, several months ago, right? There's no question. Just in between the the time that I went on my first mission, which was in November, to the time that I went on my second mission in um, in December, there's been a massive change um, that that I find extremely disconcerting. Um, so, for example, back in in November and and in the months previous to that, really anyone um, was able to, regardless of nationality, was able to make this journey, and it was um, in it was. Uh, uh, in in uh, sometime in November, when uh, national governments in the Balkans put in place protocols that basically closed the door, um, starting in Macedonia and all throughout the Balkan countries, that basically said that only Afghans, Syrians, and Iraqis are like legitimate refugees, and that anyone from another country is not going to be able to make this journey. Um, and the sort of implicit understanding there is that all others are economic migrants. And I can tell you from my time that I spent in Greece and Macedonia, this, this couldn't be further from the truth. And I met with a number of Africans, South Asians, for example, who, who are coming from countries that are refugee producing countries like like Eritrea, like Yemen, for example, um, uh, countries in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, and I also spoke with a number of individuals who told me the story of what was prompting them to make this journey. And there was no question that they had individual um, asylum claims um, that were completely legitimate. And so for these governments to 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 close these borders to, to all but um, a very discrete number of nationalities, I think is extremely problematic. And I worry that it will only get worse as time goes on. Um, so what unique um, challenges or concerns do female uh, refugees or, or migrants have? Like why, why uh, have a special focus on them in particular? Right. So this is really what I've dedicated my entire career to. Is oh, and we'll special, talk about that. <laughs> for sure. Um, so the, uh, basically every humanitarian crisis, uh, often which includes uh, an element of migration, either within a country or cross borders, makes women and girls unsafe. When uh, when a crisis happens because of a natural disaster or um, or a war breaks out and people are on the move, they're separated from their family, from their community, and from the usual mechanisms um, that keep them safe and protected. And it is inevitable in the in these circumstances that. Um, that gender-based violence in particular increases. And that includes a number of different types of gender-based violence. So the one that we hear about probably the most is sexual violence. Um, and, and of course, that is that is a worry for women and girls who are making this journey as they travel across Europe. Um, but, but there are a number of other kinds of nefarious forms of gender-based violence that, uh, that don't get nearly as much attention. And that includes intimate partner violence or domestic violence um, that happens within the family and can be much harder to detect. Um, also, uh, child marriage can increase uh, people taking um, desperate means like transactional sex or what we sometimes call survival sex um, to be able to, uh, to, to, to continue on in their journey or to gain safe passage. Um, these, are, these are all the daily reality for women and girls who, who, are, who are on the move because of humanitarian crisis. So when you were on the border in the Balkan region, um, what, what did you see? Like, who did you talk to? What kind of stories did you hear? Yeah. Um, so um, I think one of the most moving stories um, from my most recent trip that I um, that I can share is a story about a woman who I met with who was uh, in Serbia, just near the border with Macedonia. Um, and uh, I should mention for context that um, at this point it is extremely cold. And if you look at most of the articles that are focusing on the European migration right now, there's a lot of talk about what's called winterization and just making sure that people people are are warm and and, and safe in that way. And so I. It was very cold in all of these places where I was making these interviews. So I'm sitting outside 
um, with a woman who was approximately five months pregnant. And she was traveling by herself with two children who are under five years old. And she's sitting at a train station waiting for the train to come. And um, I was traveling with a female interpreter. Uh, she was uh, an Arabic speaker. And um, and so through my interpreter, I understood that, um, that this woman was experiencing a lot of pains related to her pregnancy. And she was feeling very worried about the, the toll that this journey was taking on her body and 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 on her baby. And as a result of that, she was feeling like she really wanted to go and see a doctor, but she needed to stay and wait for the train to come because people are moving through these countries with incredible urgency. There is there's a real awareness that borders are going to close, that um, that the the situation under which people are allowed to make this journey today might not last long. So people want to move very quickly. So what she explained to me was that she, you know, she was uncomfortable. She was feeling nervous. She was feeling worried. Um, but, but she couldn't go to the doctor because, because she needed to wait for this train to come. Now, what breaks my heart about this story is that I know because I am an English speaker and because I had had many conversations with humanitarian aid workers and Serbian government officials working in this, in this transit site, that that train wasn't going to come for five hours. Um, but, she didn't know that. She didn't know that. There was no information that had been given to her to explain what kind of weight she need, she had to expect. Um, another thing that I'm aware of, because I am a, an aid worker traveling through this, um, this zone, is that there were, I think, at least three different medical clinics within this transit site where she could have received... Um, uh, you know, emergency medical care. She could have seen a doctor and if needed, they would have transported her to a hospital where she could have received free medical care. Um, all of this was, was, was unbeknownst to her because one of the major, major problems that I have seen in all of the countries I've visited along the European migration route is uh, a horrifying lack of of information um, faced by all of the refugees who are who are making this journey. Um, many don't know what country they're in at any moment. They don't know what country they'll be moving to next. Um, and 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 of course, that is a deeply scary feeling to not know where you are. Well, did you um, tell this this woman uh, all these things that yes. you knew? <laughs> Yes, yes. Before I continue with explaining um, how how challenging this is and how much better it could be, let me say that yes, the first thing that we did was immediately through my translator, we explained that um, that there was a doctor available, that she had many hours before the train would arrive, and she could not only could she go to this doctor that was right here and available to her within a hundred feet of where she was sitting, but in fact she had time to go to the hospital if if the doctor decided that that was what was required, and um, and we we helped her over to the doctor's office. And so hopefully she received the support that she needed. Yeah. Um. So you. Uh, so what kind of like recommend? So so my understanding is you're 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 making this trip to write a report that includes recommendations for you know governments, international agencies to perhaps ameliorate some of the challenges that that female migrants face. But yep. I have to imagine that like a lot of these recommendations are probably best implemented by national governments. And that a lot of these national governments are just like trying to create conditions unfavorable to migrants. Yeah, yeah. So to like dissuade them from coming to their borders, that seems to be the trend over the last several months, particularly in southeastern Europe. Completely, completely. I mean, something that that we heard in all of the countries that we visited is that essentially. Um, the asylum and legal protection mechanisms are structured in a way that that these countries really only want to be seen as transit countries. They don't want anyone to stay. And so in the case of Macedonia, for example, the asylum law was recently changed in the country so that all asylum seekers are given 72 hours um, to be able to decide whether they want to seek asylum or not. Now, what that basically means is that people have 72 hours to legally be in Macedonia before they leave. Um, whereas previously, um, before this law was changed, um, all of the all of the migrants and refugees making this journey were doing so essentially um, illegally. Um, so basically, this is this is the model of what many of these countries are doing along the route. They are they are creating situations that are just hospitable enough to allow people to make the journey, but they actually have no intention of hosting 
um, these these refugee populations for any longer than this 72 hour minimum. And in many cases, less than that. It's probably Um, fair to say, though, that the refugees themselves don't want to stay in Macedonia. They want to go to to Germany, Northern Europe. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, a country like like Germany or Sweden has a lot more to offer than a country like Greece or Macedonia um, because of the, the economic realities in in these other, you know, in these poorer and smaller countries. Um, so so it's it, it jives well. Um, but I think that the reality is that um, due to weather conditions, due to closing borders, um, there are going to be op- there are going to be moments when refugees are not able to continue along in their journey. And a perfect example of this is what's happening in Greece now, where as a result of these um, distinctions in nationality, as I mentioned earlier, that has meant that anyone who is not um, one of these three nationalities, Syrian, Iraqi or Afghanistan, they're not being allowed to move through. Uh, through the the Greece-Macedonian border and, in fact, are being pushed back to Athens. Um, And so Greece is therefore having to set up camps and try and find ways to host all of these refugees. And, of course, they, you know, didn't have these sorts of contingency plans in place ready to go to anticipate and prepare for, uh, for this circumstance. And Greece, in particular, is in a very difficult financial position to be able to uh, to accommodate this this influx of people. And ultimately, what this means is that um, people are going to continue to flee where they are fleeing from, but they are going to find alternate means to get where they want to get to. And so that means using traffickers, using smugglers, um, using long circuitous routes um, that expose them to further dangers, and and ultimately um, is going to expose them to more dangers. So I, you know, I have to imagine. I mean, I, I, I don't know you, but I know a little bit about your your background. And you mentioned earlier that you've been working on these refugee issues, uh, female refugee issues, for for your you know career. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I have to imagine that that career is taking you to places that are far less advanced or wealthy than even the Balkans. Yeah. Um, like you know, like I would imagine places like Sub-Saharan Africa, like like South Sudan or or, mm-hmm. or uh, the DRC. Mm-hmm. But uh, like, have you seen anything as bad as the situation in the Balkans, or is this, or is there sort of like a general like handle on on what's happening? You know, I, I I don't think that there's any like hierarchy of horribleness there. I've seen horrible stuff in a lot of different countries around the world. And I think that what's so frustrating and so um, uh, like a- attention grabbing about the European refugee crisis is that it's Europe and it shouldn't it shouldn't be as bad as it is. And there shouldn't be so many parallels and similarities that I can draw from my experiences in the Congos and the South Sudans of the world to what I'm seeing in Serbia. So, for example, when I was in Serbia a few weeks back, I was speaking to a group of Syrian women who told me that um, because the bathrooms um, along the transit, um, the transit, along the migration route, there are these transit sites basically at the entry point and exit point of every country. And, um, And basically they were saying to me that the latrines are dangerous because they are either not separated for men and women or the men's and women's latrines are right next to each other. They feel so unsafe um, using these bathrooms that they're not eating or drinking for days at a time because they, they fear that they might be exposed to some kind of violence if they use the bathrooms. These are the same concerns that I hear women say to me in, in Congo, in, uh, you know, in a number of different countries where I've worked all over the world. And so for for this situation to to persist in a country like Serbia, where not only do we know better as an international community, but one would think that a, a country as developed and uh, relatively wealthy as Serbia, you'd be able to stand up um, a, a just a much more humane quality of services that would make women able to make this journey in a much more dignified way. Um, so I'd love to pivot real quick and uh, just you know, find out how you you got so interested in these issues. Um, you know, I know that you used to work for Refugees International, uh, an organization that I, I know pretty well. Um, but where where are you from? Yeah, so I grew up in Connecticut, uh, oh, in a suburb in of New York City, Wilton, Connecticut. Oh, I know Wilton well. I'm from Brookfield. <laughs> oh, from, okay. I grew up uh, yeah just just outside of Danbury, but yes, Wilton. That's a nice yes. area. It was a nice area. It was a it was a it was a great place to be a kid, um, and I had a very happy childhood there. Um, I grew up in a family that really um, loved international travel, and so I feel really lucky that um, 
all throughout my childhood. Uh, I was I was traveling around the around the world, primarily to to Western Europe um, with my family, and really got this um, desire to uh, be a global citizen from them. I think. And, um, and so that, that sort of created an early buzz for me that certainly continued, um, in studying abroad in when I was in college. Um, and I always had this like deep urgency to travel to places that were not quite as comfortable as the places that I think my family was comfortable going to on vacation. Well, where Um, was the first, what was like the first place that you traveled to that was perhaps the developing world or not quite as comfortable? Right. So when I uh, had opportunity to study abroad in college, I was desperate to go on this program that my college had to Kenya. And my parents just put their foot down and they said, it's too dangerous. It's too unsafe. You can't go. Um, and, uh, and so instead, I traveled to Italy and I had an amazing semester. I was an art history minor in college. And so I had an amazing time looking at Renaissance art for a few months. Um, but I basically put together a, like a PowerPoint presentation for my family about why I should be able to then, after my semester in Italy, go and spend the summer working in Ghana. Um, Ghana was the first country in Africa to gain independence. It was totally safe and stable. The people are known as the friendliest people on the entire continent. I really promise mom and dad that I'm going to be safe there. So um, so they agreed begrudgingly. And I went and spent a summer doing some volunteer work uh, with a small NGO, um, working in a rural community and teaching in uh in the western part of ghana uh, and go ahead what well uh what what was the ngo like what kind of what kind of work did you do it was this little group called um it was a little group called cross-cultural solutions which uh, sort of i think thought of itself as like a mini peace corps-esque kind of experience for people um and so i was teaching english uh at a middle school And, um, you know, looking back, I have a lot of complicated feelings about these organizations that send um, primarily American, young American people out to do volunteer work. And sometimes I don't know that they always do it the most effectively. Kind of like the volunteerism sort of of thing. Yeah. Yeah, I think that sometimes that can be really dangerous. That said, like I, I have nothing bad to say about cross-cultural solutions. I had a really good experience. I, you know, I, I got to do some teaching, which is something that uh, I went on to do a little bit more of um, in the years following. And um, and I, I saw enough of Ghana and sparked enough for me that that it really, I think, you know, be- began the basis of what became, you know, dedicating my life to this field. Uh, so, so where did you go to school? Um, so I did my undergrad at Union College in upstate New York. I studied political science there. And then uh, after a bunch of time living overseas, I went back and did my master's at Columbia. I went to the School for International and Public Affairs. SIPA. Everyone knows SIPA. Everyone knows SIPA. Um, so, so, so where else did you live? Um, uh, besides Ghana and that in the interim. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so the big thing that sort of pushed me in the direction that I'm in, that I'm on today, um, was, uh, this program that I did with another Peace Corps alternative program called World Teach. They're based out of Cambridge, Massachusetts. And, um, they sent me to, uh, this country called the Republic of the Marshall Islands that, uh, people have now finally heard about a little bit because of the climate change conversations. But, um, back when I went, which was in, uh, 2003. Um, yeah, most people, most people were asking me to point to it on a map. It's a very, uh, it's a very remote, um, country that is made up of a number of islands and atolls in the middle of the Pacific ocean. And there I lived for a year. Uh, it was truly a alternative to the Peace Corps kind of experience. Wow. I have never, I don't think I've I've ever met someone who's been to the Marshall Islands. It's funny. (laughs) And like, so, so, you know, I kind of cover the UN and in UN circles, the Marshall Islands is, is famous one of, of course, for, for, for climate change. But, you know, oftentimes you have these like lopsided votes at the general assembly, um, where the U.S. for one reason or another is like the only country in the world who is opposing some resolution on something. Yep. Uh, but oftentimes it won't be just the USA. Marshall Islands will always be there. It's like Palau, the Marshall Islands, and the USA will like stand firm <laughs> against yeah. the rest of the world on some random issue. <laughs> Yeah. And, you know, that that was also true back when the Iraq war was happening. Uh, the first year yeah, that, you know, um, uh, in 2003, uh, they're, they're, the, first, they're the first coalition of the willing. Was yes, the yes, yes. Thank exactly. You, exactly. They have this 
And they were super sensitive about all of the jokes that were made at their expense at the time. I don't know if you recall, but it was like, yeah, the Coalition of the Willing is like the U.S. and the Marshall Islands. Whoop-de-doo. I bet they probably have like five soldiers to contribute. But for the little Marshall Islands, those five soldiers like really means a lot to them. Um, And they're sort of best known as as the nuclear testing site, right? Yes, exactly. Exactly. Um, So uh, for every year that you spent in the Marshall Islands, it's like getting an extra x-ray. The nuclear testing that was done there in the 1950s was just horrific and has basically created like a modern day trail of tears that has created this very um, special, complicated relationship between the U.S. and the Marshall Islands. Well, is that what you were there sort of investigating? No, 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 no. I was just there uh, working, um, working as an English teacher. So um, the Peace Corps had been in the Marshall Islands for many years, but then they ended up dropping out because it is it is a really intense location and a lot of people ET'd. And so uh, the Peace Corps stopped being there. Um, And this organization World Teach came in a couple years after the Peace Corps left. And um, and I have to say that, you know, I've worked in in a lot of different war zones and a lot of different post post disaster settings. And I still think that the year that I spent on an outer island of the Marshall Islands was one of the most personally challenging and physically challenging years of my life. What, um, what made it so challenging? Just the, the remoteness or, yeah, or what I mean, was your living situation? Factors, right. So I'm living on an island that's less than one square mile in area. There are 400 people on the island with me and no one speaks English except in the capacity that I'm teaching these kids to speak English. Um, I was teaching first through eighth grade um, English. I had 150 students and um the only there was no electricity, there was no running water, there was no way to call home. Um, there were phone or excuse me, there were planes that came, um, you know, every couple of weeks, but they weren't super reliable. And that was the way that you got mail. But the you know letters would take forever to get back and forth because of the remoteness. So like, I've just never been anywhere in the world where. Um, you know, I was just so far away, so removed from what was happening in the rest of the world. Um, you know, 9-11 could have happened and I'm not sure I would have known about it. Um, so there's that. Um, well, some people find like serenity in that kind of isolation. You know, I think that when I, I, I want to say that I did this program when I was 21 years old, and I think that I really thought that I was going to find that. And I, and I had moments where I did, I mean, like I, I read the classics, I, you know, I did a lot of really deep thinking about my career and, uh, and it was, it was an instrumental time for me. Um, but I also did some like really intense soul searching and just recognized that, um, you know, no woman is an island in the way that I thought that perhaps I could be, um, that I really needed people. And, um, the, you know, the young women who were, who were my age, who were on this island with me, um, you know, who lived there you know, at 21 years old, they already have four kids. <laughs> mm-hmm. We had nothing in common. We just had nothing to talk about. Um, and so that was really challenging. Um, but before I left to go and do this program, I had asked my favorite professors in college to give me um, recommendations of books to take to a deserted island, because this was sort of the closest, you know, I was ever going to come to that. And because I had been uh, a political science major and a feminist in college, um, but was just sort of coming to my my feminist awakening at the end of my senior year, I um, I basically got from these professors um, the the classics from a feminist perspective. Well, what were will. they? What were they? Um, so I, I read uh, I read The Second Sex while I was there, for example, and that stands out really really strongly for me. And um, and what I like to say is that I was sitting on this beach in the Marshall Islands, reading Simone de Beauvoir, and saying to myself, you know. Man, like if Simone thought that it was really tough to be a woman in Paris in the 1950s, like I mean, my, the the women of the Marshall Islands have got nothing. You know, I have got uh, you know a much rougher deal than 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 they did. Um, and I, it was really this experience of being there and seeing the way that this community functioned and the immense responsibility on the shoulders of women and and adolescent girls um, in the face of extreme poverty. Um, It just really opened my eyes. And, um, you know, I look back and it was a it was a very naive time that, you know, I I to be truthful, I'm not sure that I really understood the world of gender and development that existed 
and um, but sort of came to it on my own and said, this is this is really what I want to do. And so while I was there, um, something that I recognized that was really a, a stunning gap was that because of the very conservative culture in the Marshall Islands, um, which is a result of uh, years of missionaries and uh, and very now conservative Christian values on these islands, um, there's no point when uh, when mothers talk to their daughters about uh, about reproductive health, about adolescence, about where babies come from, about um, certainly nothing about sexually transmitted diseases or HIV. Just all of this is a mystery to them. Um, and so I decided towards the end of my time in the Marshall Islands that you know, English is all well and good. And I was very proud of the fact that, you know, students who I had became readers and became writers and passed entrance exams that enabled them to go to high school and to continue their education. And I'm glad for all of that. But I decided that the most important thing that I really could do was to teach sex ed to these kids. So I wrote it. I got permission from the PTA. Yeah, there there is a very small little parent teacher association there. So I worked with my principal, and um, and he and convinced him and made him a believer. And then together he and I sold it to the PTA, and um, and then I found a male teacher who I trusted. And I wrote the curriculum in English and in Marshallese, which was a language I was fluent in by that point, and and just spelled it out and drew embarrassing pictures on a blackboard and let kids write questions on pieces of paper and uh, that I that I answered anonymously. And we set up a condom distribution point on the island so um, so students could have safe sex if they if they wanted to and they were able to access birth control for the first time, which they would never have been able to otherwise. And you know. If I were to go back and do this now, I would do it totally differently. But, um, you know, I was I was I was just super motivated by the idea that uh, life for these girls doesn't have to be this way and it could be better. And uh, and I got super excited. So how did you go from from here? What it sounds like almost a career in international education um, to to a career in, in refugee issues. Yeah. So I, uh, I had some fun that year teaching, but I just recognized that I'm like not even close to patient enough to be a full-time teacher. <laughs> I wrote letters at the end of that year to all of the teachers that I had had growing up saying to them that I really appreciated them because I just felt like after standing in front of adolescent boys for many, many months, I just really like understood finally what it was like to be in front of a classroom and recognized that that wasn't for me. So, um, uh, to me, I, I, I then really saw that um, that public health was going to be a good entry point for me to start working on um, on women's health and then eventually sort of on on broader gender and development issues. Um, so after the Marshall Islands, I moved to Washington, D.C., where I worked for uh, a public health group called the Futures Group International. Um, they've actually changed their name uh, to uh different name that I don't know off the top of my head now, actually. Sorry. Um, and uh, and so I worked for a couple of years for that organization and began to understand you know, the way that these issues play out in the Beltway, which, of course, like couldn't be further from the, the direct field reality, like all of the politics and USAID and contracting and uh, and, and started to understand that side of it. Um, I, I then decided to go and spend a summer in Kenya before going back to graduate school because I, I just had spent a little bit too much time in Washington to... So you made it to Kenya after all. I did make it to Kenya. <laughs> okay. I finally did. Yes. <laughs> um, that was uh, that was the summer of 2007. Um, and I was living in Nairobi and working for a grassroots organization there that was working on HIV. Um, and so at this point, like solidly women's health and HIV and um, and gender based violence was coming coming into being my over, it was uh, I was looking at GBV and its inter- gender based violence and its intersections with uh, with HIV. AIDS. Well, Kenya in two thousand and seven. I mean, you know, the summer what wasn't wasn't quite as bad as as the election period uh, exactly. in the late winter. I mean, did you have any inkling that the violence that would befall Kenya in December of two thousand seven and January two thousand eight? Did you have any sense that something like terrible was brewing? I have to say I didn't. I have to say I didn't. And I was working with lots and lots of Kenyans and it felt it felt fine to me. It really did. Um, So, yeah, that was not something I was particularly attuned to at that time. Um, But then, you know, when I went back to to graduate school and I was studying um, here in New York, I. 
you know, I was fascinated by the UN. It had been a childhood dream of mine to work for the UN. And that really, really excited me. But, you know, if you held a gun to my head and said, you know, do you want to be a humanitarian? Um, do you want to go to conflict zones? Like, the idea of that to me was just crazy. Like, I just didn't understand why anyone would want to um, go to the places that you see on the news that look so terrifying. And that's Still to this day, um, I don't have that same inclination that many of my colleagues have, that when a terrible thing is happening, they want to be there. Um, so what happened was I, I, I did have a number of experiences while I was in graduate school, consultancies and internships um, that uh, that opened my eyes a bit to to working in conflict settings. But again, like not a whole lot of interest in, in being there. Um, and so I was actually doing a fellowship in, in New Delhi, uh, in India, in 2009, in late 2009. And I got a call from a woman um, who was the head of what was then UNIFEM and is now UN Women in, um, in Port-au-Prince, Haiti, saying to me that uh, she and I had met through an internship that I had had uh, at a UN agency uh, in New York. And so she called me and asked if I was interested in coming back to, um, to Haiti, where I had done some research while I was in grad school. And I was thrilled at this opportunity. Uh, the Haiti that I knew was the Haiti of 2008, which um, at that time felt it was a very optimistic story. Um, there, there had been a number of really horrible natural disasters that had happened, but the country was making economic growth for the first time in many years. Um, and it was, it, it was a positive development story as much as, you know, as much as one can say of Haiti. And, um, and so I said, yes, I would love to come. I was super excited. It was a program to start a, a GBV program around the country. And uh, three days after I signed on the dotted line, the earthquake happened. Were you there? Were you in Haiti when the earthquake no, happened? No, no, thank goodness. No, I was at home in New York when it happened. Um, so, so luckily I wasn't there, but a number of my friends were, and of course, uh, you know, I definitely lost colleagues and friends in that, in, in the earthquake, which was just a horrible, horrible mm -hmm. thing, obviously. Because it um, did hit, I mean, I, you know, obviously thousands of, and th hundreds of thousands of, of Haitians were killed, but, but a lot of humanitarian workers as well. Exactly. I mean, the UN building, you know, collapsed there. It was the collapsed. largest collapsed. single calamity to, to befall the UN and I think the organization's history. Completely, completely. So um, when I was in graduate school, I did a, as I mentioned, I did a research study uh, in, in Haiti and I visited Port-au-Prince and, um, and a number of people uh, who who had supported that 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 research program and who I had met with while I was there, including the SRSG himself, um, passed away in the earthquake. Um, so uh, so the mm -hmm. Haiti that I ended up going back to a couple months later um, was a, a very very different one than the one that I had 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 gotten to begin to know in in two thousand eight. And I, I should say the SRSG is is UN speak for the special representative of the Secretary General is the top UN official in, in any of these mission based countries. Um, yep. so, so what, what did you do then? Like, so, so, but you, you did go to Haiti after. I sure did. I did. I did. I went and I spent a year working there, uh, with UN women and it was, it was, you know, it was obviously the, the, the job that made me forever a humanitarian. After doing this work, there was just, <laughs> there was no way to go back to these cushy development settings by comparison. I just became too fascinated by the humanitarian. So context. what, I mean, what was the work? I mean, I do yeah. remember after the earthquake, as the reconstruction and recovery was happening, how you'd hear all these stories about women living in these kind of sprawling or sometimes makeshift um, displaced persons camp. Uh, just suffering pretty horrible, you know, yeah. an egregious uh, sexual violence. Absolutely. Absolutely. So as I said, I, you know, there was my primary mission while I was in Haiti was to set up a GBV program. But that program was to be outside of Port-au-Prince, actually, in five cities outside of Port-au-Prince. So I wasn't able to actually start working on that program until about nine months into my time in Haiti, because the first the first nine months of my of my contract was just purely focused on on emergency response. So um, UN Women asked me to basically become their representative in uh, what humanitarian jargon calls the cluster system, which is the way that we uh, set up coordination around a variety yeah, will you, of different Will you sectors. explain that, though? Because that, that's a, the, an important sort of inside baseball uh, speak, the, the, the cluster system. But it's something mm -hmm. that, that Haiti, I think, was probably really the, the first um, implementation, big implementation of the so-called cluster system, which was devised after the Indian Ocean tsunami, I think, principally. Um, Precisely. So, I mean, I know all about it, but, you know, 
I, I write about this stuff all the time, but but I think it's it's helpful for people. But like I'd really the core like not... you to explain this extremely complicated yeah. thing, Marcy. Please. Sure. Um, <laughs> so uh, so as a result of humanitarian reform that happened, and um, help me out, was it? Yeah, it's like after the. Well, it was it was at some point after the Indian Ocean tsunami, right? Right. And and yeah, it was just basically this this idea. Um, that a better way to coordinate and deliver aid is to have represented have like various agencies just kind of take charge of certain specific aspects of the response. Precisely. So, um, so what this looks like um, is that there are a variety of different sectoral clusters, um, is what they're called, um, that are on a variety of different themes that are essential to humanitarian action. Um, so what that looks like is that if you are someone who works on nutrition, um, there is a space called the Nutrition Cluster that is led by the UN agency, uh, UNICEF, that works the most on nutrition, that has that, that key responsibility on nutrition. And everyone gathers around UNICEF um, on, uh, you know, it's different in every country and in every emergency, perhaps on a weekly basis, maybe on a monthly basis, maybe on a biweekly basis, depending on the intensity of the emergency. And all of those nutrition actors all get together and theoretically, um, they all collaborate. They, ex they explain what their programming is looking like, where they're working, where they're not working, where are their gaps, what are the immediate needs, um, uh, where do I need logistical support, um, and basically it's just supposed to foster increased collaboration between actors. So there, there are... This is making me look terrible. Yeah. I, I want to say there are like 12 clusters yeah. there. <laughs> in different areas, like you said, nutrition and then exactly. like housing. And water or and sanitation. Housing, water, exactly. In education, yeah. in food. And, and which protection. cluster did you, did you lead the cluster as So as I, played a, I played a, um, a small uh, leadership role within what's called the gender-based violence subcluster, which is a subcluster of the protection cluster. Um, within sub, some, some clusters, there are smaller subclusters yeah. for uh, the UN does love its bureaucracy. <laughs> um, but so, so what, like what, what did that involve? I mean, personally, like how, like how did you manage that? What, what, what did that look like? Huh. So basically the, what the, what, what any cluster, what the GBV subcluster looks like is um, lots of international organizations, um, UN agencies like my own at the time I was working for UN women. There was also UNFPA and UNICEF there. They, they together, co-lead uh, the, the GBV subcluster, um, then a whole host of international organizations, uh, international non-governmental organizations that have special skills working on gender-based violence. So in Haiti, that included the International Rescue Committee, um, the American Rescue uh, the American Refugee Commission uh, Committee, mm -hmm. um, uh, a host of international NGOs that were all deployed in Haiti. So what does like a, an intervention against gender based violence in Haiti look like? Like what did you guys actually like do or, or implement? I might just jump in and, and, and just also say that uh, mm -hmm. I wanted to also say that at a cluster meeting, there would also be representatives from government agencies and from and from local organizations. And oh, that's okay. very important to mention because Haiti is sort of the classic case of these local institutions not being included around these very important mm -hmm. coordination spaces. Um, but what does a program, what does a GBV program look like? Um, what so you did in Haiti, yeah. Yeah. So, um, so basically what, um, what we, uh, were working to set up were, uh, essentially like one-stop shops, um, within different geographical areas where a woman, if she experiences some type of gender-based violence can go and be received and, and, uh, the, the, in French, we would say, uh, accompanied, um, to, to That's all English the various too. service uh, services that she might, <laughs> that mm -hmm. she might require. So, um, generally that means if she desires first going to the doctor to receive emergency medical care, um, and that would include emergency contraception treatment for any, um, any STDs, um, including HIV that she might have, uh, that she might have gotten through an experience of, of sexual violence, um, and, and any other, any other medical assistance that she might need from, from uh, beatings or anything that she might have experienced. In addition to that, then, um, then she would be able to access, hopefully, psychosocial support, a counselor, someone to speak to about the experience that she had. 
um, and a safe space to do this in where she knows that she's free from her perpetrator and all of her information is going to be kept confidential. Um, then we would provide support for her to be able to report the case to the police, again, if she so chooses, and again, then support to, to legal assistance if she wanted to, to, uh, to bring the case to court. Um, and so how long in general were, were, were you in Haiti working on these issues? I was there for a little bit more than a year. And, uh, and, and while a big part of it was working on um, trying to set up, you know, these kinds of programs that I just described, another huge part of it um, for me was trying to make sure that all of these other clusters, whether they were on food or shelter or water, what have you, that they were also considering the particular needs of women and girls, um, gender mainstreaming, if you will, the cluster system. Um, and I would like to humbly say that uh, I, I didn't do a great job at this, but it was probably too much to have on one person's shoulders. Um, and I would love to share a little bit about this experience. I mean, um, and it, because it's something that we run into again and again, and uh, and it's you know as 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 recently as my trip to Serbia just a few weeks ago. Um, so there are all kinds of tools and guidelines and. Um, uh, and books out there that that tell humanitarian actors exactly what they need to do, whether they work, um, you know, regardless of what sector their expertise is in, to make sure that the programs they're setting up and putting in place are available and accessible and safe for women and girls. And um, it pains me to say that that routinely we we see that this guidance is not um, is not followed through. Um, and so, you know, the example that I gave about Serbian women and girls not not eating and drinking to not go to the bathroom because the latrines were dangerous places. This is something that we saw in, in Haiti all the time. And so like the, 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 the so-called sanitation cluster isn't like attuned or aware or sensitive to these, these issues. And so it's not like they don't really consider it when say erecting latrines. I don't want to make a blanket statement and say that the water and sanitation cluster is always to blame. It's a classic example to say that uh, to to reference um, latrines and showers not being set up in a safe way for women and girls. I think ultimately a lot of the responsibility to get um, to get these issues uh, considered and 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 to get um, gender based violence risk mitigation, we call it enable, uh, implemented in the field, um, it really comes down to having willing personalities, right? Having, having a colleague who I can go to, um, who works at that wash cluster and say to them, you know, listen, I visited camp XYZ the other day and I noticed that the latrines are in like really sorry shape. I didn't see any locks on the doors. There's no lighting anywhere around them. This is a huge protection risk for women and girls. Can you do me a solid and fix that? And I shouldn't have to do that. But yeah, it's sort of dispiriting that's that that's, that, 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 that that's like what, what it takes is just like a few, the like the personality of the individual as opposed to some like systemic um, you know, recognition that this is just like something you have to do. Yeah. I mean, like my job now basically in part is, is to, um, to take the guidance that is out there and to work at much higher policy levels to try and make sure that it is implemented in a systematic way. Um, but the fact that I continue to travel to the fields and continue to see these basic things not implemented demonstrates that we have a lot more work to do to, to fix that disconnect in between the conversations and the policies and the guidelines that are created at HQ but don't necessarily reach the field. Um, yeah, there's sorry, one really super telling example that I can give about the time that I was working uh, with um, a cluster that I, I, I perhaps won't mention um, in in Haiti, uh, where there was uh, an extremely long meeting um, that I should mention was all in English, which meant that uh, local Haitian institutions weren't able to to participate. Um, and was led by three white guys, um, all who were, of course, experts in their field. Um, but they were talking at length about uh, a kind of programming that they were hoping to set up in Haiti. And after, you know, the, the couple of weeks that they had been in the country, they really thought that these were sort of the promising initiatives. It was a two hour long meeting of a very, you know, intellectual um, uh, you know, high level UN jargon speaking sort of sort of meeting. And at the end of it, I said, I, you know, they asked if there was any questions and I raised my hand and, um, and said, you know, I've been here this whole meeting. And I, I'm just surprised to say that in this area that is so, um, 
so massively important for women and girls that there hasn't been any discussion of women and girls in this whole two-hour meeting. How can it be that we can have a conversation about um, about the about this program without thinking about women and girls? And the entire tent was full of guffawing laughter at the audacity of my question. Um, and after the meeting, I was walking away. Um, and a couple of the guys who were running the meeting caught up to me and uh, laughingly told me that I was really a feminazi um, for, for being so militant about these issues. Um, and, uh, you know, Haiti in so many ways has become the classic example that I think is being held up in graduate schools now about what humanitarian response should not look like. And, um, and just to say that this, this is an example of, and, and my time in my time there working on these issues was, was really exactly that. This is not the way that it should be. It shouldn't be laughed at that women and girls deserve to be beneficiaries of humanitarian aid in an equal way to men. Um, so, uh, we're just about out of time, but I'd love to learn what's, what's next for you. Uh, I know, uh, you know, you're currently, you're still working on, on these issues. Are you planning another trip to, to the Balkans or, or what's next on your, your, what should we look out for? Yeah. So, um, coming up in early 2016, I'm going to be, um, doing another European assessment, but actually this time I'm going to be going to the countries that are destinations, um, for, for these refugees. So hopefully we'll be traveling to Germany and Sweden in the next couple of months, um, which I'm really excited to see, to sort of complete the path and see what conditions look like for refugees who, uh, who've successfully completed the journey. Um, and of course it is a situation that's changing every single day. Um, so, so that will be really fascinating. And then we're planning to do one last mission, um, also early this year, where we will revisit a couple of the countries that I've already visited and sort of doing a looking back, where are we now? Um, what are the lessons learned from this? And I, I just think that this is really a crucial time because if you take a look at the numbers of refugees that are making this journey across Europe and uh, and, and the numbers over, over the last few months, yeah, they were at their peak um, in the early fall and uh, and reached their uh, the acme at uh, in October and have been declining a little bit since then and that is in part because of the nationality screenings that I mentioned earlier but also just because of the weather um, it's cold and that makes it really difficult and and uncomfortable to make this journey and also dangerous to do that boat journey from um, from Turkey to Greece that we hear so much about in the media um, so we know that that as soon as the winter thaw happens and uh, and the weather gets a little bit brighter, a lot more refugees are going to be making this journey, either on this official route or if conditions in indeed, you know, continue to be complicated or and, and get more complicated, then they will be using more nefarious means, using traffickers, smugglers. All of that spells more danger for women and girls. So this is really a crucial time for my organization to be working hard to advocate to make sure that systems are put in place that keep these girls and women safe uh, that uh, so that that's all in place by the time the numbers increase again in the springtime. Well, Marcy, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Mark. It's just been an absolute pleasure. All right. Thank you all for listening. That was great. Uh, as always, keep sending me your suggestions of people I should interview or topics I should cover. And I should note that uh, this suggestion, my conversation with Marcy, came from a listener. So keep sending me your suggestions. See you next time. Bye.